0: On this week's Wealth Track podcast, why financial historian Richard Silla is worried about inflation coming out of this pandemic.
1: We used to say, Milton Friedman taught us that uh, money uh, causes inflation. You know, if you, you, He explained a lot of inflations in U.S. history based on uh, excessive money creation. If you look at the latest monetary statistics, they're really kind of shocking and almost disturbing that uh, these are, you know, double digit increases in the amount of money out there. And that's why I think that there's a decent chance that there's a little bit of inflation, maybe a lot of inflation down the road.
0: Noted financial historian Richard Silla this week on Track. Hello and welcome to our Wealth Track podcast. I'm Consuela Mack. Historical perspective matters. So our topic today is the economic and financial impact of past epidemics and pandemics in the United States and how they apply to today's experience. Our guest is noted financial historian, Richard Silla, professor emeritus of economics at NYU Stern School of Business, co-author of A History of Interest Rates, which is a classic on the subject and an Alexander Hamilton scholar. His latest book is Alexander Hamilton on finance, credit, and debt. Co-authored with David Cowan, who is the CEO of the Museum of American Finance, of which Scylla is chairman of the board, and I am a board member. Scylla recently co-authored an article in the museum's magazine, Financial History, on the topic of the financial and economic effects of pandemics and epidemics. We will provide links on our website, WealthTrack.com. Dick Silla, thank you so much for joining us on WealthTrack.
1: Consuelo, great to be here and nice to work with you again.
0: So Dick, let's talk about epidemics and pandemics. They are not new to the United States. And what was so fascinating about your uh, article in Financial History Magazine was that One started in the early days of the Republic, the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia, which was then the capital of the U.S. in 1793. How damaging was that health-wise?
1: Well, something like ten percent of the population of the Philadelphia area died of yellow fever, and uh, and that was just in about four months' time. You know, August, September, October, and early November. Actually, less than four months. The area around the city itself and its suburbs uh, had a population of about fifty thousand. So, ten percent of the population actually died, and it was probably even greater for those who stayed in the city because some large number of people. Left town. It's it's a bit like the New York in 2020. Uh, a lot of people who could go to a second home someplace left town, and uh, but some people who didn't have second homes had to stay in the city.
0: That's a pattern that we've seen throughout. That we'll talk about epidemics and pandemics. It's it's that the people who have no options, the poor, the laboring classes, basically, they're stuck there. And that's an issue, whereas a George Washington, for instance, uh, fled to Mount Vernon.
1: Right. Philadelphia was the capital of the United States then. And so all the government leaders were there. uh, And very early in the outbreak, uh, Washington left town uh, and went back to Mount Vernon. Uh, But Alexander Hamilton stayed in town and he and his wife got the yellow fever.
0: Let's talk about the impact on the markets and the economy. What were they?
1: It, it wasn't really so great. I mean, I think it affected the town of Philadelphia, but uh, the the, the uh, epidemic was uh, localized to that area. And, of course, the uh, rest of the U.S. Uh, was not experiencing that uh, epidemic. And so uh, life went on as usual. And in terms of the financial markets, which were just getting going in our country at that time as a result of Hamilton's financial reforms, uh, you know, we've actually have – securities prices available um, and we find that uh, uh, there was not very much effect uh, uh, of the, the, the epidemic in Philadelphia on the prices in Philadelphia. The market shut down for a while. But uh, important point to remember is there was a very similar market in New York trading the same national securities like this the, the uh, uh, Treasury bonds of the United States and the stock of the Bank of the United States. These were fairly new things, not more than three years old or so. And uh, while Philadelphia, the trading uh, shut down for a while. Uh, prices didn't change that much. And one of the reasons was the market stayed open in New York where there was no epidemic. And anyone in Philadelphia who needed to sell a stock, uh, if, if he couldn't do it in Philadelphia, he could do it a day later in New York without much difficulty. So the fact that it was just an epidemic in one place and not a pandemic affecting everywhere, uh, minimized the uh, economic and financial fallout of the epidemic.
0: It just shows how important it is to have liquidity and the markets open <laughs> in, in an epidemic or a pandemic as well. And that is true to today. Uh, there was a cholera epidemic in New York City in 1832. What was interesting, again, in your article was that it said there were many recent immigrants that had come into New York City and they were deeply affected uh, by this uh, cholera epidemic.
1: Yes, by then New York was the the biggest city in the country, and it had a population of uh, two hundred uh, and fifty thousand people, and a lot of them were recent immigrants. and And the city was mostly below Fourteenth Street then, which is not very far up in Manhattan today, but uh, uh, you know below Midtown. Uh, but th- that's where the city was, and and uh, a lot of those immigrants were living in rather close quarters. And uh, I think the uh, cholera spread amongst them. Uh, again, uh, some of the wealthier people uh, just left town for a while, so you had an influx of immigrants. In a and uh, as in 2020, the population of New York below 14th Street was fairly dense, and so uh, the cholera could easily spread from one person to another.
0: I th- I think uh, one of the figures that uh, that you gave was that 3,500 were killed, and that's the equivalent of a hundred thousand. 000- people dying today.
1: Yes, that's right. It's 250,000 people and 3500 were killed. So, you know, New York has a much larger population uh, today. Uh, but if you just take the same percentage, you, you get that uh, large number you said.
0: And what was interesting was you talked about the market impact. Tell us about what the market impact was.
1: Well, the New York Stock Exchange was actually organized formally in 1817. You know, they talk a lot about the buttonwood uh, tree in 1792. And and that was a lot of the same people in 1792 were among the organizers of the exchange and formally in 1817. So by the early 1830s, it was a fairly big market with the, you know, government debt, although the government debt was shrinking rapidly then would be paid off a few years later, uh, but there were a lot of bank stocks and insurance stocks and, uh, there were also the railroads were just coming in then so you had railroad securities as well and you know the markets handled the uh, uh, cholera crisis pretty well and I think the reason is that the, you know the people who were trading stocks were among the well-to-do and they could probably escape although they might have left instructions for their brokers. The ones who really had to stay in the city, uh, the, those immigrants you mentioned and the, the laborers who were already there, they were not sort of the classes of people who were uh, invested in the stock market or the bond market. And, and therefore, as best we can tell, the markets, you know, traded within narrow ranges and there wasn't any big disruption. And a point I made earlier about Philadelphia was still true. Although New York was being uh, hard hit by the cholera epidemic, the Philadelphia market was still open and it rivaled New York's market in size in 1832 because the national Bank, The Bank of the United States was still there. The Philadelphia markets were open. I don't think they closed the markets down in New York, but uh, any New Yorker, if he had a hard time selling in New York during the cholera epidemic, he could uh, sell in in, uh, Philadelphia just as easily. So the liquidity remained. I think today we see a lot of the Federal Reserve interventions are to maintain the liquidity of the market and keep it open and that liquidity was maintained in uh, the cholera epidemic in 1832.
0: And then we had this enormous change of pandemic, which is like an epidemic on steroids. And that was the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918 to 1920. World War I was very much a part of that. So tell us about the public health toll from the Spanish flu pandemic.
1: Well, that was a, a worldwide pan, pandemic. The difference between a pandemic and an epidemic is that an ec- epidemic can be localized, but a pandemic is going to spread over a wide area. And, and in this particular case, it spread throughout the world. And uh, that made it different from uh, the previous things that we studied that were either in New York or Philadelphia or you know may, maybe a few other places in the United States. Um, across the world, something like... Uh, Two uh, percent of the world's population died. Wait, uh,
0: forty million people.
1: The United States uh, had a pretty high death rate as well. I think we lost something like 550,000 people. And that would have been about half a percent of the population. Well, if you think about half of the percent of the U.S. population dying in a pandemic, what would that mean today? It offers an interesting contrast with uh, the death figures we're seeing every day. Um, half a percent of today's population would be about 1.65 million people Uh and I think that's, uh, you know, quite different. We're uh, talking about getting to 100,000. I think that's about where we are now. And uh, uh, so the Spanish flu uh, in 1918, 19, uh, and tw- 1920, other places in the world, uh, was actually much more lethal than uh, our um, current uh, coronavirus uh, uh, pandemic and I think one of the reasons is that the people were much less prepared for it uh, the war was going on soldiers were moving around and in fact the United States government response was not very good uh, the the government actually tried to suppress some of the uh, negative information about the flu because they thought it would be bad for morale while World War one was winding up in 1918 we were talking about uh, a kind of checker response to the current pandemic but you know you could say the same thing 100 years ago and the reason was that the government thought it would be bad for morale while the war was going on Uh, the worst of it came right at the time the war was ending in in uh, september october november uh, of 1918 and i guess going into january 1919 uh, our historian in our town here in new hampshire where i'm speaking to you from right now uh, said that 13 people in this little town died in the Spanish flu and and most of them were in early 1919 and they included school teachers. Um, Today we seem to be losing a lot of elderly uh, and particularly in retirement homes. The interesting thing about the Spanish flu in uh, 1918 and 19 was that uh, people in the prime of their life between 20 and 45 years old say were the once mainly hit and the elderly and the children were not uh, hit so much so that was kind of a difference that you know that made 19 1819 uh, 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 you know besides soldiers being away at war you had uh, uh, people in prime working ages losing their lives
0: so that's an interesting distinction uh, as well because i was looking at some of the figures uh, that you had uh, in your your article and it was that this Real stock returns uh, declined by 7%, uh, short-term government debt declined by 3.5%, and inflation uh, went up by 5%. Give us some sense of why that was, whereas in the previous epidemics that we've discussed, for instance, you didn't see that kind of uh, damage in in either uh, the stock returns or the short-term government debt.
1: Well, I think the stock market doesn't really like inflation. I mean, I've studied that some, and not just in connection with panics. And uh, uh, so, stock prices went up in 1918, but they went up by less than the rate of inflation went up, and the. 1918, 19 and early into 1920 were years of rather high inflation, double-digit inflation like we've only seen a few times in, uh, in my lifetime and uh, back in the 1979, 80, 81, we had double-digit inflation. Well, we had double-digit inflation in 1918, 19 and early 1920. And uh, overall, stocks didn't change that much in nominal terms from the beginning of 1918 to 1920. Uh, 1918 itself was an up year, but the stock market went up less than the rate of inflation. So the real return was negative. And I think uh, that was partly, you know, uh, due to the fact that the stock market doesn't really like a high rate of inflation
0: and as far as the impact on the economy, so I'm looking at annual real GDP growth was under 1% in both 1918 and 1919. How much of that can you attribute, for instance, to the flu? And how much can you attribute to the war? Well, I think the uh,
1: some of my economist colleagues, Robert Barrow, who I went to graduate school with, you know, four or five decades ago, uh, he wrote a paper on this. And uh, it's, it's very difficult to say what was the effect of the war and what was the effect of the flu but they managed econometrically to do it and they decided that the war had more to do with inflation and the slowing of economic growth uh, because a lot of soldiers of course were off overseas and, and not there in the labor force but they did pick up significant effects of the flu itself the The flu the war removed people from the labor force there was a you know a, a, an effect it was not in you know, the war was a little bit greater, but the flu had a negative effect on the economy and and probably on the stock market as well. But the main effect was the wartime inflation going on, which uh, converts whatever economic growth there was in nominal terms into very little growth in real terms. And the same thing is true of the stock market.
0: So I'm going to fast forward to today, Dick. There were other uh, pandemics in between the Asian flu pandemic in 1957, 1958, there was a you know a flu uh, in the late '60s, which has been commented on in the press. That kind of none of us really remember. This has been likened to a war um, by our president and others as an invisible war, uh, and also uh, the you know government uh, policies of shutting the large swaths of the economy down have affected the working age population.
1: I think the war analogy is an interesting one to say a few words about, uh, you know, in, in this case, it's uh, the effects aren't invisible, but the uh, the enemy is invisible. And usually in a wartime, you know who your enemy is and you can see them on a battlefield. But um, today we have an invisible enemy, but I think it's like traditional war in the sense that it'll probably last longer than anyone expects. When I look at the quick recovery of the stock market, I'm saying, well, the stock market is thinking this isn't going to last very long, but since we've pulled the rug out from under the economy, I think it's going to last a little bit longer. It's going to take a long time for all those people who lost their jobs to, to get them back. It'll gradually happen, but it's not going to be done by the end of the year, even if we find a vaccine. Um, I would also say that the government role, of course, has gone up a great deal. We see that with all the spending programs of the Treasury and the lending programs of the Federal Reserve. Uh, and... Um, Government spending is increasing. They're, they're winners and losers. I think we see that in the stock market. The, it seems to me that uh, we know the travel and entertainment sector, you know, the hotels, the airlines, uh, um, the cruise lines, uh, uh, the restaurants, they're, they're, they're kind of losers from this. But there, there seem to be some winners, and I think they're the, the, the big companies we see going up every day, the, you know, the Microsofts, the Apples, uh, the Amazons. Uh, the Fangs. Yeah, the FANG stocks, they're, they're going up. And why is that? Well, I think they're, they're sort of the winners from this because they're strong companies with strong balance sheets. They, they have a lot of cash. They're certainly going to survive the panic. And many of them are finding that their business is increasing uh, during the uh, this pandemic. And and so they seem to be the winners and the stock market is showing that. One difference between uh, uh this situation and uh, war is that labor markets are obviously not tight. We've laid off a lot of workers. That, and so that's, that's a big uh, difference. I would say another thing is when you study wars, they usually end with recessions. You know, in demobilization, the government stops spending so money, the, the troops come home. Uh, you have a recession Uh, At the end of wars, in this case, where the recession is at the beginning of our war on the virus Uh, uh, and the recession is one we brought on ourselves by telling people to stay home and not go to work and keep away from other people and don't go to restaurants. The war analogy is, while imperfect, it, it, it seems a little bit relevant to me in what we're witnessing today.
0: I'm going to refer again to the Financial History Magazine uh, article uh, that you co-authored and again that we will have on our website on WealthTrack.com. When you summed up in the article a a couple of lessons, um, one is that no two crises are alike. The differences are there, but also uh, there are some similarities too, which you've described. But one of the things that you said is that the securities markets tend to be good leading indicators of future earnings expectations And move rapidly up and down as new information comes in. You mentioned that you're a little bit skeptical of the positive reaction that the markets are having right now. So um, how good a leading indicator are they? Or do you think in this case, um, the optimism is overplaying what the future of the economy looks like?
1: Apart from wars and apart from pandemics, the the stock market has a record of being a, you know, somewhat reliable leading indicator of uh, the direction of the economy in terms of recessions. Paul Samuelson once famously quipped that the stock market has forecast nine out of the last five recessions. Uh, So the markets may fluctuate a little bit more than the economy does. That's one thing I've learned over many years that the markets tend to magnify both on the upside and the downside what's actually going on. but I think that uh, uh, I'm, I'm skeptical about the, the markets right now but, uh, because I think they seem to be thinking that we're in a, a problem that isn't going to last very long and it's going to go away. But when I see what we've done to our economy as a way of coping with the panic, it's telling me and I'm not the only one that there's, you know, it may be two or three years before we get back to something resembling normal. Uh, it's not going to be over later this year. Uh, I, as a scientist, though we economists pretend that we're scientists, even if we're not always that. Uh, You're
0: also artists.
1: <laughs> yeah, artists. Uh, you know, we we like to pretend we're scientists, but we also have to be historians and artists. What I'm trying to understand is why the stock markets are bouncing back so much. I think it goes back to the response to the pandemic in the sense that the, the Treasury and the Federal Reserve and the uh, uh, Congress uh, responded very quickly and in the in the way they've responded is to, to put more money in our pockets and to uh, put more, more money into the financial markets. And how does that happen? It happens when the Federal Reserve goes out and, and buys government bonds or buys mortgage bonds or now they've been uh, uh, creating facilities to buy corporate bonds. A whole lot of money has been created, and that money has to go somewhere. You know, suppose you're a person who uh, sold his government bond when the government uh, the markets dictated that the, you know, the price was high and the yields are low. So I'm going to sell that bond. What do you do with that money? Well, I think most people look around, most investors look around for some other place to put it. And the the one place that looks sort of promising relative to most other things right now is the stock market. So I think the re- the recovery of the market is based to a large extent on the huge amount of uh, purchasing power money that's been created by the uh, Congress and uh, the Trump administration and Treasury and the Federal Reserve. And that money has come back into the stock market. But, uh, you know, that is kind of a situation that is a bit artificial. Uh, we used to say Milton Friedman taught us that the money uh, causes inflation. You know, if you, you, he explained a lot of inflations in U.S. history based on uh, excessive money creation. If you look at the latest monetary statistics, they're really kind of shocking and almost disturbing that, you know, most of the monetary increases year over year, you know, from April of uh, 2019 to April of 2020, just a month ago, uh, the money stocks, different measures, M1, M2, M3, M4, the money stock has gone up in that year over year comparison by between 15 and 30%. Uh, These are, you know, double digit increases in the amount of money out there. And that's why I think that uh, uh, there's a a decent chance that there's a little bit of inflation, maybe a lot of inflation down the road. The Federal Reserve is pretty sophisticated now. They have the tools to uh, take away uh, some of that purchasing power. But when they do that, interest rates may go up and uh, that's not so good for the stock market.
0: You tend to be an understated person. (laughs) And you're rational and and a scholar on uh, finance and behavior and the markets and all of the things that go into that. And you're also a a student of wars and interest rates and inflation. And so at this particular moment in time, many, many people still feel that inflation is not going to be a problem. You know, the Fed to the best of its ability over the last decade has attempted to get the you know, inflation rate up to 2% and they basically have failed. And so everyone is saying, look, um, it's, it's not going to be a problem now. We've had this deflationary shock. And uh, even though we've created all this debt to kind of fill the holes and to get us from the deflationary shock and this economic shutdown to a recovery, that that is not going to be inflationary you're saying that you are concerned about inflation. So tell us about your inflation concerns.
1: Well, I think it's just uh, a lot of this money creation. Money has to go somewhere. And I, I think it may, uh, you know, it, start going into what we call the consumer price index uh, goods you know what we ordinarily buy uh, week to week and month to month uh, and then there's the uh, wholesale or producer price index uh, which is heavily weighted toward commodities i i think that we're actually producing less but we're giving people more money uh, to buy that stuff and i think once people can actually get out of their homes out of the shutdowns uh, you know the Government has mailed you a check, and you couldn't really spend it now because you had to stay at home. But when uh, the lockdowns end and people feel comfortable in going out, the, the 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 money that the government has sent them will will be spent. At the same time, because we've slowed down the economy so much, there'll be fewer goods available. So I think that there, there's a, a decent chance that more money chasing fewer goods is going to raise prices. I must say that uh, when Business Week magazine arrived in my mailbox yesterday. One of their articles was deflation stalks the US. I mean, Uh there there are serious economists worried about deflation, uh, I didn't worry, they were worried about that back in the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009 and the Federal Reserve said well, you, we must avoid by all uh, everything we can do deflation. You know, the Fed is basically remembering the 1930s when we did have deflation uh, but and that's the reason the Federal Reserve had targets a 2% inflation because if they actually have 2% inflation you'll be pretty far away from deflation. Uh, I don't worry as an economic historian about deflation as much as the federal reserve seems to because you know there are periods in the u.s history uh, the 1820s and 30s and again the 1880s and 90s when the u.s economy was growing very well and there was a, a, you know a modest deflation so deflation is not the worst thing in the world uh but i think that right now i would be as i was back in 2008 and 9 not worried about deflation like some of my colleagues are uh But I see the rapid money growth and uh, uh, the basically cutting down on the production of the goods that we spend our money on as creating a situation where uh, inflation might rise. There's a danger there that that people don't expect it, but once it starts to happen, uh, uh, maybe they'll say, well, we can tolerate a little bit because we didn't even get to have as much inflation as we wanted for the past decade. You know, the Fed didn't hit its target. It was below 2% inflation. Uh, People will say, well, we can make up for that with three or four or 5% inflation. And the thing that really bothers me, Consuelo, is that Uh, Inflation is supposedly good for debtors. Uh, You know, their paychecks go up, but their mortgage payment doesn't change. And so it becomes easier to pay off your debt with uh, money that's not worth as much as it used to be. And by the same token, inflation is bad for creditors. And then I ask myself, who's the biggest debtor of all? and what you know is that the biggest debtor of all of course is the US government which has yes. uh, not only had a national debt of 20 or 21 or 22 trillion before this uh, pandemic hit but now it's increased that debt up to 25 or 26 trillion dollars since the pandemic broke out and uh you know, there will be the government being the biggest debtor of all has some interest in having the burden of its debt reduced by inflation. So while we don't see it now, I think there is going to be politicians in Congress and uh, in the White House that uh, say we, we, you know, a little bit of a higher inflation for a while isn't a bad thing because it'll reduce the real uh national debt that we have. And so you know, these are the things that worry me a little bit. And, you know, most people don't think that way because for 40 years now, we haven't had a lot of inflation, uh, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. You know, it happens in wartime and it, uh, it's happened many times in the past.
0: We ask every uh, guest on WealthTrack uh, if there's one investment we should all own some of in a long-term diversified portfolio. And I bet you anything that very few uh, People at this point have very much uh, in the way of inflation hedges. What would you advise us to own some of, uh, again, to make sure that we're well diversified?
1: Um, if you're actually worried a little bit about inflation, uh, the Treasury issues these thing called TIPS, you know, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. Now, they give you a real yield of next to nothing, but that's, of course, what you get on almost everything these days. Interest rates uh, and bond yields are down in the, you know, between zero and uh basically. Uh, So you're not getting uh, tips yield about zero in real terms now. Uh, But they do protect you against inflation. And in in case some inflation comes along, you know, having, you know, five or 10% of your portfolio in inflation protected securities means that uh, the government will increase the value of your investment according to the rate of change of the consumer price index. So that that's an inflation hedge. And I suppose things like, I've never been too excited about things like gold and silver, but uh, I noticed they have firmed up a bit in prices lately. And I think that's telling me that the people who buy gold and silver are worried about Uh, inflation and the debasement of money. They always talk about the debasement of money. And so when I see gold and silver prices firming up, uh, I think maybe that's a sign that inflation is in front of us. And and those tend to be in the long run inflation hedges. Don't sell your house because your house is a real asset. Most people are, what, 63% of Americans own their own homes. And so that's, that's probably their single biggest hedge against inflation.
0: So Dick Silla, always a treat to have you on WealthTrack and thank you for your history lesson and also to bringing us up to speed on what's going on uh, in the economy and the markets today. Thank you, Dick.
1: Thank you, Consuelo. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you.
0: Next week on Wealth Track, influential and independent-minded economist, David Rosenberg will join us with his take on the economy and markets. For more information about Richard Silla, the Museum of American Finance, and its wonderful financial history magazine, go to our website, WealthTalk.com. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. And please make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.